0: So this morning, we're going to be finishing up our three-part series on God's community and family. And so as we begin, I'd like to first take us into prayer. Father, we are gracious and grateful for the fact that you have given us your word. And God, I pray that we'd be the people of the word, that that as a church, we would be known for people who meditate on your word, that we would be like a tree firmly planted in streams of living water, that we would grow deep in those waters of your word. So Father, I pray that as the word is proclaimed, that it would be your words that are lasting and eternal, that mine would fade away. We thank you for what you're doing in this church and in our families. And it is in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to have our culmination of the two topics that we covered the last two Sundays. And really, as we said kind of at the beginning, this came out of a desire from the elders to clarify our stance on children, not only in church, but in particular during the worship service on Sunday. And so hopefully today... Um, this is a message that will help you answer this scenario, okay? So a young couple with a small gaggle of children come to you and they say, what is your church's view on children, and how does Sunday work at your church? Hopefully these are questions you can answer articulately, not only from your personal view, but also for the church. So if it's something that maybe we haven't necessarily addressed the church, it's a good time to do so and certainly a good time to remind ourselves of our view of coming together as a family in Christ and so it's important to be thinking through those things because God willing our church is going to continue to grow and God willing we will have more resources available and so the question becomes the way that we do church currently is it a temporary thing or is it a permanent view of children when we're gathered on Sundays. So when you think of how we do church now, do you think this should be a permanent view or a temporary event the way we're doing things? We're going to argue as the elders that we think the way we're doing it is more permanent than it is temporary. So there might be fixes or small changes, so to speak, but there will be no radical overchanges going forward even if we were to grow ten times the size today uh, in our congregation. And so we want to look at that today and address some of those pragmatic events, but we first just want to do a mini-review of where we've been. So if you'll recall, when we talked about the Bible and its view of children and families, we were able to see that Christ commanded the triune God from the very beginning to be be fruitful and multiply from one flesh. Men and women were to leave their mother and father to make their own family units And in doing so, to be multiple, multiply and be fruitful within that unit. As they were being fruitful, they were to raise up the children of faith. They were called to daily remind their children of what it is to be faithful in Christ when they are to wake up when they are to walk about, when they're to sit with their children or to to lay down with their children, the Bible commands parents to be mindful of their duties and responsibilities to teach the children the faith that has been passed on to them. And then lastly, and very graciously, we see that God extends family beyond simple flesh and blood. We get to the New Testament, we see that God expands it to simply more than just those who are born of The same parents. It becomes an actual spiritual event where you can have spiritual brothers, spiritual sisters. And in fact, 1 Timothy says to treat older men to the younger men like fathers. Right? Paul sees this potential adversity coming that usually comes between men of a different generation than the men below them. And he says, but you're still to have respect for that generation. In fact, you're to have such respect, you should consider the way you engage with them to be like that of your father. And so as Christians, we see that the the family is essential, but it's been expanded to simply beyond our blood roots. And so if you turn with me, we're going to look at two different places of Scripture that we reviewed two Sundays ago. We're going to first go to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to look at the Abrahamic... Promise We'll read verses one through eleven, and then we will discuss them. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God of you and your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of the Canaan, and for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." God said for Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of my covenant between me and you. And so here we have the covenant laid out, right? And we certainly see a temporary now but not yet aspect to it, right? Canaan is a real place. We know that's where Israel set up its kingdom. That's where God laid out his people. But we know that's not simply all that he's promised Abraham. In fact, we know that's not even what Abraham was looking forward to necessarily. It was a temporary kingdom here on earth. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 and we see the fulfillment of Abraham's promise take place in one of the greatest chapters in Hebrews, if you ask me, in terms of regards to understanding faith and pointing us to hope that outlasts current situations and strife and fear and is a vital essence to being a follower of Jesus. So read along with me to read Hebrews 11. We're going to read 1 through 19. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For, it, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that that which is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being, taken up that he was pleasing to God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was going to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, and a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same prophets. Promise, for he was looking for the city which foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she was considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of number and heaven number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country for their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith Abraham, when he had tested, offered up Isaac, and he received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. It was in he whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considers that God is able to raise people from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Here we see this beautiful pointing to the fact that faith is actually the descendants of Abraham, right? The Abraham's descendants weren't just actually the literal descendants who would become the nation of Israel, as the text says in in, uh, Hebrews there, but also those who believe, right? I love that 16, right? But as it is, they desire a better country as it is a heavenly one. We desire a better country. We desire a better family in the church. We have this, and it's perfected, in the new heavens and new earth. And so we see this transition being played out in the, the Bible for us to see. Family is not just simply the flesh and blood, but in, God, in Christ, in his new covenant, is expanded to beyond that to those who have faith and will be part of his eternal family. And so, as we see that family is rooted as a vital institution within the Bible. We want to look at the family in the home. And so we talked about that last Sunday. And how God has set up the family at home to be structured like Christ and his church. The father is to wash his wife in the word. And the mother is to be a worker at home. And so often I think when we hear that, we think of 1950s housewives. Right? Who's got the turkey in the oven and she's ready to put slippers on her husband when he comes home? That's not actually working at home, right? It's being diligent in raising your children, which is very challenging. That's a tireless work. Okay? I will fully admit that as a husband, I get probably more time off from being dad than my wife gets time off from being mom. She's usually more on the clock than I am, right? But the Bible calls us to be good stewards of our time with our children. And as fathers, we're to lead our wives, we're to engage our wives in theology, we're to teach them the Word of God, we're to make sure that they understand what they're learning. We see multiple places, and we didn't even cover this last week, but we have certainly seen, right, in the sense of Corinthians, where um, it says, if the wives have any questions, and in Timothy, to ask their husbands at home. In other words, there's this notion that the family is central to theology. And so we don't simply just say, that's Colin's job, that's the elder's jobs. They've got all the theology. We don't have to worry about that. Right? That's not how the Bible talks about the family in terms of theology, in terms of raising up children. It puts the pressure back and the onus on mom and dad. And so we see that there's this notion of that, that the church supplements the father and mother. Okay? And so as a church, we want to have that same vision, for the families in our lives? Do we supplement those who have kids? Do we encourage those people? And so we talked just a little bit about also this idea of leaving your father and mother, right? We want to, as a church, continually encourage people to get married, to not delay marriage. There's a fascinating stat as I was researching and looking things up. Between the ages of 16 and 29, the number of women getting married is larger than the number of men getting married. From the ages 30 onward, however, the number of men getting married is greater than the number of women. As a church, we must not buy into the secularism of our society. Our society thinks it's empowered women by saying delay marriage, delay having a family. But it actually turns out it's only making them victims in the sense of older men are uh, marrying younger women and older women are staying single longer than they would like to. So as a church we want to remind people that marriage is a foundation which you start your life it is not a capstone. And so it's something to be thinking through as we move forward to the church. That we want to encourage marriage and we want to encourage marriage to be sacrificial In their lives to one another and having children. And so certainly we want to, as a church, and we talked about this last Sunday, but just to note on again, we want to be a church that laments and prays with people who have not yet had children or who cannot have children or looking to seek children a different way. We want to pray with them. We want to lament with them, which is biblical, and be there for them. So We talked about those foundations, that marriage is foundation to having children, and then we talked about simply those key theologies, right? Teaching children the key theology of who God is, the seriousness of sin, they must be born again, living lives as a church and as families of prayer, of having worship, and and also what we're going to cover certainly today, this idea of having corporate participation as a family. And so the whole Bible builds up to this idea that the family is vital. The family is where we invest, not only simply in our kids, but invest in one another. It's always a hypocritical and often convicting thought in my mind that we, meaning I and you guys, that we often don't spend much time outside together on corporate Sundays. Because my children need to be invested in by you, and I need to invest in your lives, right? We talked about that with older men and and, uh, younger women and older wives, that there is a direct correlation between successful marriages and investment from the church. And so as we look today at the family in the church— we want to start thinking about what that looks like on a Sunday. So this Sunday, we have children in the, in the congregation with us. What is our view towards them? And so I'm going to start by asking, uh, as we get into this, a simple trivia question. We don't know exactly, but roughly, what age did Jesus start his ministry? Right, somewhere around 30, 33, we're not sure exactly the timeline. Okay, but let's just, for the sake of uh, the sermon, say it was 30. Question, is 30 a long time to be alive? If you're God in the flesh, right? So just to clarify, we don't think Jesus came into the God consciousness at 30, right? He was God fully from inception on, right? And is fully human currently. So my point being is, could Jesus have been doing a lot of good for those 30 plus years with his miraculous ability as God to heal people. Were there not sick people in his village when he was growing up learning to be a carpenter from Joseph? Right? Were there not people probably who he saw on a daily basis who were blind or lame or poor or suffering that he could have simply healed miraculously? He could have, right? And so we want to first say, you know, God's God's timing is not our timing, but I put that in emphasis to draw us to the fact that here's Jesus. He's going to do public ministry now at 30. And again, approximately how many years did you public ministry? Three years, right? Not very long, okay? Um, when we read the Bible, how many people did Jesus heal? Numerous amounts, right? In fact, there's a, ver- there's a verse that says you know, there's so many other stories that we don't even have time actually to tell. So we know that Jesus was constantly healing people, and so this was actually very vital. So if you've ever had people in your life, and we have prayer time or in family time, people pray for sick members. We we pray for people who have been injured or or, um, have cancer. So we understand that the seriousness of life and death in our midst, but yet we often forget God's ways and our ways. So we're going to review again. Go with me to Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read 15 through 17. Starting in verse 15. And they are bringing even their babies to him, so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw this, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Question. Do we normally take our children to work? Sometimes, right? But why don't we normally take our children to work? Because it turns out they're quite a hindrance to actually getting productive work done. And it could be also very dangerous depending on what your job is. And so I want to point that out because I think sometimes we forget that God's okay being hindranced by our children. We often like things streamlined. We like things done correctly, right? So we often, I think, are guilty of being like the disciples. Listen, we're, we're trying to talk about serious stuff here. We're trying to do something serious. Can we please get the kids out of here? We've got work to do, right? Think about that. Jesus healing people. Jesus preaching truth. Jesus revolutionizing Israel and yet These children are being brought to him. They're slowing him down. He's having to hold them. He's having to pray over them He's having to bless them, right? There are people who are lame. There are people who are sick. There are people who need their sins forgiven They don't have time to be holding babies and children if they want to accomplish the things that they need accomplished. That's why I think we have to remind ourselves that we can become quickly like the disciples here in this sense when it comes to church. We can say, listen, we have to talk about serious issues. The weightiness of God's glory is serious. We want to address that. So we need to make sure we have no distractions in front of us as we come together. Be careful, right? You might end up like the Pharisees where Jesus, or I mean, the disciples where Jesus has to rebuke you like, hey, let the children come to me. Permit them and do not hinder them. And so, as a church, we have to be okay with letting the children come to Jesus. We all have different stories, going to different churches where that was done well and where it was done poorly. But in our church, we need to see children as a value of their parents and a value to Jesus himself. And in fact, if you're covenantal, and if you believe that children aren't vital to Our church, they're valued members of the actual body of Christ. So, thinking about our children, it creates an unspoken expectation that we want them to join in with us in the service. And so, one of the things that we need to do as adults, not just parents, as adults, as this church, is we want to give an example of what it is like to worship God in their midst. Children don't automatically learn how to worship God. They do by examining and imitation of those around them. And so certainly I've been guilty of this. And I know certainly you have too as well. But there'll be some times where my wife will say, hey, you know, you uh, spent the whole service on your phone and uh, the kids are watching the whole time. Right? When we're gathered together, are you being an example to, A, those around you, but B, the children in our midst? of what it is to actually worship God as a body, right? Or are we simply coming together as individuals and we're teaching them an individualistic mindset of worship? So children need to see that value of the body worshiping in front of them. It helps to authenticate the actions at home of the parents. And if they come from a home where this isn't being demonstrated well or at all, your potential actions have value for them in regards to that. And we see also there's something else going on with having children in worship. We get to teach them the value of the seriousness of theology, the seriousness of the body, of communion, of preaching. And so certainly we want our children to learn how important it is to have the word spoken over them, to take communion when they are in the body. And so we see this being... Done by having them in the service, right? So just like we expect our children to practice sports, to learn how to do it, or music, or whatever it is maybe that we expect of them, we should remind ourselves that we expect them to practice being actually part of the body of Christ as they grow up. And it also gives the underlying assumption that as they become adults, this is the way life is. This is who they grow up to be. They become children who become adults who are of The faith, Lord willing. And again, it reminds us to focus on other things than ourselves. It's very hard, I think, in America to come to worship and constantly be thinking about others and not your individual needs of what you get out of the service. It's important that we do that as a church. Because I hate to tell you, but there's going to be noisy church Sundays if we want to have children part of our church. Our church and part of the body. There's going to be Sundays where you may not actually be able to focus because there's children present. And that's okay. You have to work through that. Not every Sunday can it be about what you get out of the message. It actually has to be about what we as a church get out of it together as the body gathered here. That's one of the main reasons we come together is actually the fellowship in song, in the word, in communion together. We don't simply do it as individuals who just happen to be here at the same time on a random Sunday. We intentionally come together as the body. And so as the church, as we think about these things that we intentionally want to have our children in our midst, we want to invite them to be part of it, we then have to think about how we can support family worship at every level. So we certainly do believe in nursery. So this is on an anti-nursery message if you're wondering if I was going to bring up nursery. Um, we do think nursery is vital for young parents, right? When they've got young babies, they can't actually start to emulate their parents. You can't understand they have to sit there and pay attention or be quiet, right? So we want to offer that to our young parents, and it's a good and necessary thing. So we encourage you at this church to use the nursery if you so feel. but also we don't think it's a mandatory thing that you must use the nursery. So we never want to tell a new parent they must put their child in the nursery so you can focus on the message and hear the preacher preach. We want to make sure that we encourage them in their bringing up of their child in this community. And so as we think about those things, we want to ask ourselves, what then does the future look like for our church? So if, theoretically, we just start growing, let's say, 50 people every year, okay? Before long, we're going to be a much larger church. So what would the future look like with that many people and those kind of resources? Well, your elders certainly believe that we would want to have Sunday school options for young children and children different ages. We certainly would like to have Wednesday events and youth group and those kind of things. But we don't want, we don't want it to be a separation from the body. And we have to be careful as a church that we don't go down that direction. It is very appealing to teach parents, hey, we will watch your children. We will teach your children. You get to have a break. You get time off. You can relax. We've got it. That's very appealing, and that draws people in. And so certainly as church members, there are times when it is helpful to help out those who might be needing a break, to give them a break. But we never want to make church a place where we say, this is a break from your responsibilities of living the gospel out with your children. We want to encourage parents to do that. So as long as this elder body is together, we certainly will never want to separate the children from the body of believers And so here's some a couple of things that we want to always continually offer as we move forward. Nursery, child's church, eventually we'd like to potentially have that be part of the actual service, so not a separation, but a mini lesson for the children to come forward. One of the things that we do that I greatly appreciate at this church is we actively involve children in worship. And so we have them collect the cups. If you have children or if you have money and you have a good relationship with them, Teach them to put the money in the offering plate. Help them to understand that they are part of the worship process. They're not simply pushed to the side because they're kids, but they are in the presence of the living God as his bride gathers to worship together. We have note-taking options. We have some several things we've printed off for young children to learn to take notes. And parents, it might be a good idea for you to practice on those notes so that you can model how to use those notes for your younger siblings or not your siblings your younger children and then we want to call the worship in their young lives we want them to understand the value of worshiping together that's one of the reasons i come to church is because you are all here i don't just simply come to worship with my family i come to worship with my family you are an integral part to how my children understand god's glory and grace in your lives as it reflects into their lives. And so it's important that we do that as a church, that we understand we have the wonderful, beautiful relationship with one another to reflect into the lives of those children's God's gospel. And then lastly, as we talked about last week, they haven't come in yet, but we have uh, two set of books for anyone who wants a copy, not just parents, but we have two set of books we have a book called Parenting from the Pews, which is a book that talks about how to engage your child on a Sunday morning while they're in the pews with you. And then number two, we have another book that we talked about last week called um, Raising Children in Gospel Coven- or Covenant Homes. It's just some practical things for parents to think about engaging their child with at home in relation to the gospel. And I think it's important for us to have this understood because One of the things that we want to do is we want older generations who aren't part of our church who come in to understand that we're big on family cohesion here. And we want younger people to come in when they have their children to understand that we're big on family cohesion here. It's just not simply that your family happens to worship here and mine happens to worship here. It's that we value our children. We value one another. And we actually believe we are in family together during the worship service on a Sunday morning. So we want to embrace children, we want to affirm children, and we want to raise children together as a body of Christ.